Hello and welcome. You're listening to Voices from the Pews, the show that invites you to conversations with Catholics of color and those from communities of non-European origin, so that we can get to know more about each other's faith, experiences, and stories. I'm your host, Lorna DeRose. Today, we learn about a woman of courageous faith who, during the 19th century, when Black women were denied entrance into religious orders, founded the first religious congregation of women of African descent in the United States. From a woman who was surprised by her call to religious life and is happy that she embraced that call and said yes. I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Sister Marsha Hall. Sister Marsha, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so looking forward to our conversation. So welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Would you share a little bit about yourself with us, where you're from, and a little bit about your story? I was born and raised in Trenton, New Jersey. Those of us who are from Trenton do not say Trenton, even though that's how it's spelled. I attended Catholic school, kindergarten through 12th grade, but with two different orders. I was taught by the Oblate Sisters of Providence, kindergarten through eighth grade, and then went to high school with, uh, I went to Stewart Country Day School of the Sacred Heart. So a different group of sisters. So I went from a predominantly black environment to a predominantly white environment. That must have been a huge shock to your system as a kid. Uh, yeah. The first shock was the school bus because the first year wasn't too bad. We had a bus driver who had been a helicopter pilot in Vietnam and he joked around with us and kidded and it was fine. And then he left. And then after that, we had a little old man who didn't take our side. So on the bus, you had black girls coming from Trenton and white boys who were coming from Trenton, going to the private schools, and there was constant conflict, mm-hmm. tension, etc. Mm-hmm. So um, it started on the bus, and school was interesting. I, I tell people that one of my big pet peeves is people want to touch my hair, mm-hmm. and it started in high school. Oh, it looks like steel wool. Can I touch it? No, you cannot touch my hair. Mm. Um, Yeah, learning experiences for everybody involved. So I had a brother. My brother is deceased. He was two and a half years younger than me. He passed away in 2017. My father is also deceased. So there were four of us. Mm. And so it's my mother and myself who are still living in terms of immediate family. But Both of my parents were one of eight. So I had lots of uncles and a couple of aunts. In terms of my vocation story, we talk about cultural vocations and and it's the fact that it's lacking. My parents created one without trying to. Our house was always open to the sisters at my elementary school, for sure. High school was, was further away. But my father at one time was president of the PTA and both my parents were very active in PTA in school. So the sisters were welcome at our house. The priests were welcome at our house. So whereas you meet young people today who may go through 
Catholic school and never be taught by a sister, that was not the case for me. Not only was I taught by sisters, but they came to dinners or barbecues at our house. So they weren't strange or odd. Yeah. So there was like a proximity there. So you got to see them as a human beings, but B, you were exposed to them as well, which sadly in many of young people's lives today, that experience is very lacking. Definitely. I attended the 100th anniversary of a church here in Maryland a couple of weekends ago, and the RCIA director came over with her teenagers because she said, one of them said, this is the first time I've ever seen a Black nun. Actually, they said it was the first time they'd seen a nun. And being that your family, you had the proximity of being able not only to be taught by religious sisters, but also seeing them at family events and activities. How did that influence you in regards to your openness to discerning to become a religious sister? You know, I don't think it was something that I thought about at the time. I uh, was in graduate school, and I, I have to say that there was a period of time college and the first couple of years of graduate school and I wasn't attending mass and then I was having a hard time I was uh insomnia etc and so I decided to start reading the bible mm-hmm. and uh, eventually went back to attending mass and late during my graduate school experience I went to mass on the feast of the assumption and had a vision of myself in an oblate habit and said, mm, I don't think so. And finished my degree, started teaching, wasn't finding that satisfying. And eventually, um, when I moved to Boston, I decided, well, you know what? You're not stuck. I mean, it took me a while to figure out you're not stuck in this. You don't have to do this if you don't want to. And started discerning with the oblates then. I had been in predominantly white environments from high school until I left academe. Mm-hmm. So from 1974 until 1997. And found to be toxic environments, not life-giving. And so knew I did not want to enter a predominantly white community. I did do like a come and see with a white community, but it just affirmed for me that that was not what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So um, my openness was really to discerning with the Oblate Sisters. Being that they are an order that was specifically founded for African-American women to serve the church. It sounds like that was something for you that made them more welcoming and more open to who you are as a person. Well, you know, religious life is not easy. No vocation is easy, quote unquote. And so I didn't have to have the layer of racism on top of everything else. You know, it's a totally new lifestyle. So you're making all kinds of adjustments. And I entered religious life as 
an older vocation. I was 42. So there were lots of adjustments in terms of no longer being independent, having to ask permission for things, et cetera. And then to put racism on top of it would have just made it incredibly. Yeah. And you had already seen your fair share, I'm sure, especially as a professional, as a student, and of course, in various aspects of life. Oh, yes. I mean, that that's another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to put that in my notes and I'll invite you back and we can have that chat because I think that's something that's important for us to talk about in regards to our faith and regards to our life in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the Oblate Sisters of Providence was founded by Servant of God, Mother Mary Lange. Now, I say Lange, is that correct or is it preferred to say Lang? Okay, can I ask you a question? Of course. Do you have a French-speaking background? I do. Okay. I ask that question because our experience is that people with French-speaking backgrounds say Lange. Mm-hmm. It's not a problem for me. I, you know, English speakers are more likely to say Lang. And the, the interesting thing is, of course, is that French was her first language. Mm-hmm. She and her family might have said Lange, but that's not how English speakers say it. Right. So yet another podcast, you know, the names (laughs) we carry. Mm -hmm. She, in what I've read about her life, um, was a courageous, faith-filled woman who, with the help of her spiritual director, did something that was not expected and was not necessarily welcomed during the early part of the 19th century which was that she and several companions discerned to start an order, a religious order. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes. She came here. We're not sure exactly what time when I say here. I mean, the United States. She left Santiago de Cuba sometime in the early 1800s and arrived in Baltimore, 1810, 1812, not sure which time, but certainly by 1812, 1813 was established in the Bells Point section of of Baltimore. We know she attended mass in the lower chapel of St. Mary's Seminary. And we know that because the upper chapel was reserved for priests and seminarians. And so people of color and women had had to attend in the lower chapel. So we figure that she probably crossed paths with uh, Elizabeth Ann Seton at some point because she worshipped there as well. Her father had some money and sent money to her periodically. So she was a woman of some means and used her money to have a school in her home for a number of years for the children of the Sandomangan refugees. We know that... Father Tessier was her spiritual director, but it was really Father Joubert who approached her about starting a school. He was also an immigrant. He originally, he left France because of the French Revolution, went to Haiti as a tax collector, eventually found his way to Baltimore and taught in a girls' school for a year. And then decided to become a priest. He became a Sulpician and um, was put in charge of the religious education program. Mm 
Now, for whatever reason, he struggled with that. And so Father Tessier suggested that he meet with Elizabeth Lang. So he went to her home. And if you ever come to our chapel, it is the first stained glass window in our chapel of him going to her house to meet with her and say he wanted to start a school. And she shared with him that she and her companion wanted to be sisters. And he thought about it and said, you know what, that will make the school I want to establish a more permanent institution. So he went to Archbishop Whitfield and laid the idea of both the school and the religious community in front of him. And he agreed with both ideas. So the school actually was started first. The school was started in June of 1828. Elizabeth and two of her friends started the school. And then they started their formation, their process of becoming sisters. And one of Elizabeth's students, Teresa Dushman, asked permission to join them. So there were four of them sort of in a formation process, teaching and and preparing to be sisters. And then the following July 2nd, 1829, Father Joubert came to their house at six in the morning, said mass, and then received them as Oblate Sisters of Providence. So we are the oldest continuing religious community for women of color in the world. And St. Francis Academy, the school at that time, you see different names for it. You see it, the Oblate School for Girls or St. Francis School for Girls, St. Francis Colored School for Girls was founded in 1828. And that is the oldest continuously operating Black Catholic school for children in the United States. I think it's a wonderful witness of the work that has been done, not only by her, but by the nuns and the religious sisters through the time that it's been in existence. I'm assuming the school has been around for what, 150, 160 years? Am I correct? No, it's it's 194. Ah, 194. Stand corrected. Adding to 200 years. The principal, the current president, or I guess we call him head of school, the current head of school is one of our associates. He's a deacon. And we had previously had another associate who taught religion in the building. We have one sister who works with the finance office in the school. So yes, it is still going strong. It went from being a girls boarding school to the 70s when boarding schools went out of fashion and by the 70s, black girls could attend any school for which they had the qualifications, meaning grades or money or or both. And so the, um, the enrollment had gone down and the archdiocese recommended that the sisters close the school. And they said, nope, don't think so. So they regrouped, renovated, and reopened as uh, co-ed day school. So now, so I guess for the past 10 years or so, the school has been primarily male. Mm-hmm. There are more, many more boys in the building than girls. It's an interesting trend. Is there a sense as to why there may be more boys than girls? I can tell you that having a football team definitely uh, attracts more boys. That'll do. Uh, also, I, well, I, I mean, this is just a guess on my part. I don't know if this is the case there that 
parents may be more willing to send their boys to a rough neighborhood than their girls. And there definitely is a focus at the school. I'm on the board to recruit girls. So there is a, an intentional effort to recruit more girls to the building. And it's a slow process, mm-hmm. but the numbers are slowly going up. All right. Well, I hope that this gains some awareness of that and prayers that there will be more girls attending in the future. You know, the other thing is that the Archdiocese closed mm, 13 schools, maybe about seven years ago. I could be wrong on the on when. And a number of those schools were feeder schools for us. So that also makes it more challenging. So obviously having football, people hear about the football team and that's going to be boys. Uh, and though we have had successful girls basketball teams for years. I think people pay more attention to boys sports than they do to girls. Unless you have a niece or a daughter who is actually on the basketball team or whatever. But I think there's a particular culture in parts of the United States that definitely emphasizes boys football. Absolutely. We'll be right back after this message. Editing podcasts is a lot of hard work. And let's face it, you've got better things to do. Let Superblink remove those ums and uhs out of your podcast so that you can convey your message more efficiently. For more information, visit superblink.org. Welcome back to our conversation. So I'm going to pivot back a little bit to Mother Mary Lange. Being that they started the religious order in 1829, what obstacles did they face in regards to starting the order and in their decision to decide to teach young girls? Was there any difficulty in regards to their ministry? I'm not aware of any difficulties in terms of their mission. I mean, they specifically said they were founded for the Christian education of girls. And from what I've read, there was no lack of girls, either Catholic, Protestant girls who could pay, girls whose families couldn't pay. That was not the issue. Now, in terms of a religious community for Black women at a time when slavery was still in existence, oh, yes, Black women were certainly not considered women of virtue, which is most people's uh, presumption, expectation of religious women. And so before they even made their vows, they went to Father Joubert and said, "Um, we're, we're concerned, we don't know if we should go ahead with this. And he went to the archbishop and the archbishop said, don't worry about this. You have my support. And so when you started out by saying courageous and faith-filled, those words definitely describe Mother Lang and the early companions. Our motto has been providencia providavit, which means providence provides. And believe that Providence has provided, does provide, and will provide. There were occasions 
anti-Catholic violence in the city of Baltimore when Father Joubert slept in the parlor. There were instances where the sisters were forced to step off what little sidewalk there was into the gutter. White people were coming down and would not move for them. Certainly, we believe there was talk, unpleasant, difficult talk about how dare these women wear a holy habit. And um, at one point, Mother Lang supervised the housekeeping staff at St. Mary's Seminary to bring in money. And in the letter she wrote, she reminded them that they expected to be treated according to the holy habit that they wore. So, yes, there was an expectation that there would be difficulties, and those expectations were met and probably exceeded. In 1843, Father Joubert died, and there was a different archbishop. Archbishop Eccleston was now in charge, and he came from a slave-owning family. He did not see the need for the Oblate Sisters of Providence. So when they approached him about a new ecclesiastical director, I don't know that he ever said no, but he never appointed one, or I should say he didn't appoint one initially. And it wasn't until Father Anwander came along in 1847, he was a redemptorist who was recruited to be the new ecclesiastical director for the sisters. And so he went to the archbishop and the archbishop's initial response was, I don't see the point. And the story goes that Father Anwander got on his knees and begged and the archbishop you know in today's parlance said whatever and appointed him as the new ecclesiastical director we consider him our second founder Mm -hmm. he's an interesting person because he came to know the sisters as a seminarian he was german he came with uh, father shackard who was giving a retreat and He was so impressed by what he saw that he decided to learn English and come back and work with the colored people. And so he was um, a person who was young and energetic. And so when when he can't, you know, when the sisters didn't have an ecclesiastical director, things were very difficult. They couldn't ask women or invite women to become a part of them. They were responsible not only for themselves, but for the children of the house. These were orphans and half orphans who lived with the sisters. So they had to be sure there was something for all of them to eat. Right. And in the annals, it says we draw a veil over this time. So they didn't even keep a record. It was so rough. It was so difficult. Oh, but yes. Dushman mm-hmm. left during that Director period, of vocations went to Michigan and co-founded another religious community, the Sisters Servants of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. You know, that's one of the founders and she's gone. So um, it was a very hard time. And there is a story that uh, Archbishop Eccleston suggested that the sisters disband and become servants. And there's nothing specifically in the archives that says that, but it's not that far-fetched. Right. And being that he was from a slave-owning family, in his mind, that's where these women should have been within society and within church. 
right? And that, you know, whether they said it, whether they verbalized it or not, their actions said, that's not what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. We are going to rely on providence mm-hmm. and ride this out. And that's what they did. Providence so when Father came along, you have new members. Mm-hmm. School is flourishing again. He even encouraged them to establish a school for the boys of the San Domingan refugees, which they established in the alley behind the convent. And he also proposed a black man for the priesthood. Now, as far as I know, there's no record of who that was. And of course, nothing came of it. That was very early. But he was farsighted enough to say, you need people from your own community. Let me see how I can make that happen. He had a radical vision of what the church should be within the United States, within the Black Catholic community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Amazing. In thinking about the Black Catholic community and the radical vision, she is one of the six African-Americans who's crossed up for sainthood at this time. And so where is she within that process? She is still servant of God. Mm -hmm. The historical commission has approved her cause, but the theological commission is still reviewing it. Once they approve it and it goes to the Pope and he approves it, then she will be venerable. And of course, at that point, we pray, continue to pray for a miracle to come along so that she will be blessed. And after she's blessed, another miracle for her to become St. Mary Lane. So I think we all believe at this point that the miracle is the real sticking point um, that with the theological commission, it's a matter of time. It's just waiting for them. You know, COVID-19 stopped a lot of things. Sure. Yeah. And so we're just waiting for that to happen. Yeah. And so many things are taking much longer or have taken much longer just because of COVID. And now that people are beginning to come out, if you will, of their shell and, and, and beginning things again. But thinking about uh, Mother Mary Lunch and her cause for statehood. And of course, it's important for us to pray and ask for her intercession. But what else can we as Catholics do in order to, A, uh, make others aware of her and who she is and her cause? And how else can we assist in helping to further her cause? Well, if there's a group of people at your church, your parish, for example, that's interested in promoting the cause, I mean, really interested, they can form a chapter and they would contact Sister Magdala Marie Gilbert, who's the director of the guild. The guild is arm that is really in charge of promoting her cause and raising money for that. And so as a chapter, that would be what they would do. They would promote the cause. They would, for example, give out prayer cards. They would give talks about Mother Line. That's one of the things that I do to make people more aware of who she is, who she was, and um, her importance in church history. So establishing a chapter is one way. Saying the beatification prayer every day is another way. We definitely do not dismiss prayer. So those are the two primary ways. I mean, 
there's still people in Baltimore who have not heard of Mother Lang or who have not heard of Late Sisters, but we keep chipping away at that. There have been a couple of short videos made about her recently. Anything that gets her name out there. We have a newsletter that people can subscribe to. You can become a guild member and you would get that newsletter automatically. I think it's produced about four times a year. And that updates people on the cause as well as the community. You know, now that things are opening up, we will open our house. We've been closed. We are still closed pretty much, but we are open our house Easter Sunday from then on. And so at that point, we would be open for tours and pilgrimages. I mean, Baltimore has places where Mother Lang actually walked. And so we take people to those places. Zoom talks. I did a number of those during the pandemic. So those are all ways for us to reach out and people to reach out to us. Absolutely. I will definitely make sure that links to you and the sisters are in my show notes so that folks will be able to reach out to you. And hopefully they will come to Baltimore and walk in the footsteps of a saint, mm-hmm. as well as perhaps hear a talk about Mother Mary Lange. Now, thinking about her, is there anything else that you think that we should know about her that perhaps we don't hear as much about in the story of her life? That's a very good question. It's not one that I get very often. Something that you should know about it that you wouldn't necessarily hear. She spoke three languages, Mm -hmm. French, Spanish, and English. She was born in Cuba. A number of people at some point thought she had been born in Haiti, but that's not where she was born. Her parents were Haitian, but she was born in a French-speaking community in Cuba. So those are the two things in terms of correcting misinformation. Sure. And I think that's important too, because I think that helps us understand that, you know, she was an educator and she was faith-filled, but she understands so much of what it means to be on the outside, if you will, in so many ways because of the color of her skin, because she is a foreigner in a strange land. And Mm -hmm. even though it is her church, they were not necessarily welcoming the stranger. And yet she, with uncommon faith, persevered. And as the motto is, providence provided. I remember as a younger sister sitting around in the dining room and hearing the sisters talk about how Providence provided at various points. I have my own stories. The one I tell most often is that when I was principal of the academy, I hired a woman whom I had known when I was vice principal at another school and um, a parent there. And she was going to be my Spanish teacher. And so I'm talking about giving an orientation to St. Francis and talking about Providence will provide. And she says, well, I don't think I understand what you mean by that. I said, well, for me, you're an example of that because I needed a Spanish teacher and here you are. 
you know, so it was an example to me of Providence providing. I don't know what I would have done if, I, if she hadn't been available. I didn't, it wasn't like I knew a lot of Spanish people who spoke Spanish, who taught Spanish, and she fit that bill. You know, once you understand Providence spirituality, you can see God at work in your life all the time. I think that's a wonderful way for us to understand her faith and who she was. And I think it's an example for all of us as to how we should be in trusting in God and trusting in who he is and leaning into that. When I give talks, I say to people, think about the fact that she got on a ship. She came here. She did not know anybody here as far as we knew. She didn't speak the language when she came. You know, so all of that took an incredible amount of faith to step out on, step into, lean into, and then come here, start a school, start a religious community, all of that. And and to keep going and persevering despite the hardships. Absolutely. Lots of faith, lots of courage. Very true. And I think we need that example in our lives today of lots of faith and lots of courage to persevere through very difficult times and very difficult circumstances. Mm -hmm. Sister Marsha, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak about yourself and Mother Mary Lange. And we pray that she will be St. Mary Lange very soon. And I look forward to having you on the podcast again, and I'm sure we'll have another wonderful conversation. I hope you've enjoyed listening to today's conversation with Sister Marsha Hall. During our conversation, she mentioned that one of the ways we can help to promote the cause of Servant of God, Mother Mary Lange, is to pray the prayer for her canonization. Will you take a moment to pray this prayer with me now? Almighty and eternal God, you granted Mother Mary Lange extraordinary trust in your providence. You endowed her with humility, courage, holiness, and an extraordinary sense of service to the poor and sick. You enabled her to found the Oblate Sisters of Providence and provide educational social, and spiritual ministry, especially to the African-American community. Mother Lush's love for all enabled her to see Christ in each person, yet the pain of prejudice and racial hatred never blurred that vision. Deign to raise her to the highest honors of the altar so that through her intercession, more souls may come to a deeper understanding and a more fervent love of you. Heavenly Father, glorify your heart by granting also the favor of answering the particular prayers of each person joining me today, which we ask through the intercession of your faithful servant, Mother Mary Lush. Amen. I've got a link to this prayer for you in the show notes. So please consider adding it to your treasure trove of beloved prayers. 
I've also added a link to the explanation of the process for individuals to be considered for sainthood. I'm grateful to those of you who've reached out with words of encouragement, suggestions, and recommendations. This is what will improve the sound, quality, and content of this outreach. I'd like to share a comment sent in by a listener. Hi, I listened to part two of Jamile Lima Pandolfo's interview. The gift of the differences in the way in which each culture lives out the faith enriches the church immensely. Thank you. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, please share it with a friend or post it on social media. Voices from the Pews is produced by Lorna DeRose. Audio editing and post-production by Byron Lee. Music composed and performed by André Louis. Social media assistance provided by Jacqueline Brunach. Web hosting provided by Beyond the Brand. For more information about Voices from the Pews, go to VoicesFromThePews.com. Thank you for listening. See you in two weeks.